Hello, I'm Chris Kreutcher, and this is Neurostation, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is Crates You Should Know, BindGen and CBindGen. Before we dive in, Parity is back sponsoring the show because they want to hire you to come work in Rust with them. Parity is advancing the state of the art in decentralized technology, and they're using Rust to do it, leaning hard on Rust's trifecta of performance, reliability, and productivity. They're building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Two of the larger projects they're working on are Substrate, a framework for building blockchains, and Polkadot, a platform leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interop in decentralized systems. If either of those, or just working in Rust full-time, sounds interesting, check out their jobs at parity.io slash jobs. Thanks to Parity for sponsoring the show. Over... Two of the last three episodes, we talked a great deal about foreign function interfaces, and I walked through how you can explicitly define and build out those FFIs yourself. However, as you can imagine, doing that for every single function and type you deal with in a large project with lots of FFI is painful and error-prone. Happily, the work of mapping C interfaces to Rust interfaces can, by and large, be automated with the bindgen crate. Similarly, we can automate the work of mapping Rust interfaces to C interfaces with the C bindgen crate, though with a few caveats. Today, we're going to dive into how each of those works. We'll start with bindgen. Bindgen is an official Rust tool, but it is not part of the standard library, and that's in part because it's not needed for most projects in Rust, and it's really a library for your build process, not for your crate proper. BindGen is a tool for generating bindings from Rust to C and some C++ libraries. If the thought of writing out bindings by hand and hoping you get them exactly right every time seemed a bit intimidating when I talked about that over episodes 29 and 31, well, you're not alone in that. I honestly feel much the same way. BindGen is here to help. BindGen only generates Rust bindings for C and C++ code, though. It's designed to cover the half of the story that's usually most important when you're integrating Rust into an existing code base full of C and C++. For example, this is exactly what Mozilla needed when they started pulling Rust into the Firefox code base, because Firefox is pretty much entirely C++. Pinegen supports two ways of using it, as a command line tool and as part of a build.rs script. And the latter is the recommended path. It gives you a great deal of control over exactly how you use the library. In particular, it lets you account for things like architecture-specific if-defs. And that's often important for cross-platform Rust code, which is interacting with cross-platform C or C++ code. So if you follow the official recommendation, you won't need separate binding files for every target you build against. You will just handle it in your builds.rs file. However, your consumers will need a copy of the Clang compiler to build your code in that case. Happily, it's fairly easy to get an up-to-date version of Clang on every major platform, including for multiple different Linux distros, Windows, and Mac OS. As with build dependencies in general, you'll put bindgen in your build dependencies section in your cargo.toml file. Then you need to create an entry point for the library to do its work, a single .h header file, which uses the pound include syntax to pull in every item declaration you need bindings for. It does that by including, with that pound include syntax, other .h header files from the project you're working with. This file also has one other purpose, but we'll come back to that in a minute. 
Once you have included all your requisite dependencies, you'll go into your builds.rs file and add a use bindgen statement to pull in the bindgen library. Then the simplest thing you can do is use bindgen's exported bindgen type to create a builder and call its header method with the path to that .h file you created as its argument, and then call its generate method. This will do the work of attempting to parse that header file and all the files it includes and to generate a data structure which can be written as Rust's type definitions of exactly the same sort we talked through in detail in episodes 29 and 31. You can write that out then using the write to file method on the generated bindings item and you just pass it a standard file path. So using it is pretty straightforward. There are a number of ways we'll customize that behavior beyond the defaults in many cases, though, and these customization tools are helpful for situations where the defaults aren't quite what you need. To start with, we need to know how to deal with C and C++ enums, and you can map them into Rust in a variety of ways. The first is as a set of constants, which you can optionally namespace into their own module, where each Rust constant has the integer value corresponding to the enum literal value on the C or C++ side. The second is as Rust enums, which can give you guarantees that the discriminants match across the language. And this sounds like what you always want, right? But it's only what you always want if you're in total control of the C side, because otherwise you can cause undefined behavior when using this way of mapping things across, specifically when the C enums change and the Rust enums don't between different compiles, because, well, enums are complicated. The docs link to a detailed explanation of this and other ways in which that undefined behavior can be triggered. The point is that, as is always the case with FFI, things are more complicated than they might seem at first. The third way you can map enums across is as bit fields, which are densely packed layouts designed to save space and deal with byte alignment issues. These are the kinds of concerns that come up sometimes when you're dealing with registers on embedded systems or when dealing with certain kinds of messaging protocols and so on. The net of this is you need to have a pretty good understanding of what the C or C++ API does and then make sure you map it over correctly on the Rust side so that things work as expected. You can also extensively customize how Bindgen handles other non-enum types. For one thing, you can set up a whitelist or a blacklist to determine which types get exposed across the FFI boundary in the first place. It might well be that you only want to pull in a small subset of the items defined across a bunch of different header files you're including. But on the C side, we don't really have that kind of control. When you pound include a file, it's literally just dumping the contents of that file in as a string. I have stories about this behavior. If you ever happen to see me at a conference or a meetup, you should ask me, and I will happily regale you with the horrors I have seen, and I do mean horrors. But in our case, you can use the bindgen builder whitelist family of methods, whitelist type, whitelist function, and whitelist var, to tell bindgen to only include a subset of those pound-included items in your generated Rust-type definitions. Similarly, you can blacklist types from appearing with the blacklist type method. However, that is only for when you need to provide your own handwritten definition of the type, because the type will still show up in other functions and types, and you need to provide a definition for it or your crate won't compile. If instead you want to have Rust not 
care about the details of that type, your best bet is telling BindGen to generate a type that is opaque to Rust. That's the inverse of the opaque type scenario I talked about in detail at the end of episode 31. Here, to do that, you use the BindGen Builder's opaque type helper, and then it will generate a type for which Rust knows only the size of the type and its alignment. You can also replace one C or C++ type with a different C or C++ type entirely, one presumably that BindGen can do the right thing with when the original is too complicated for BindGen to get right. Servo has to do this at times with C++ types. I'm hard-pressed to imagine it ever coming up in plain old C code, but of course I could be failing to think of, of some or another weird edge case. C has a few of those after all. Finally, or rather finally for our purposes today, you can customize what traits do and don't get derived for these types in considerable detail. You can opt out of copy and clone, which BindGen tries to supply for you by default, or you can opt into other traits like debug or default or hash or equal, all of those using other methods off of the BindGen builder type. I've covered this all at a very high level, but there are many more settings you can tweak and customize along the way. To dig deeper into this, you'll want to look at two other resources, the official BindGen guide and the BindGen API docs. Give them a read, and there you will see what the net output of all of this is. When you run BindGen's generate and then write to a file, you'll get a Rust file that you can include in your Rust library, and everything should just work. So that does it for BindGen. But what about going the other direction, generating C types from Rust, say if we wanted to consume them in a Swift project or something? For that, we use CBindGen. CBindGen is not an official Rust tool, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. You just need to understand its limitations and its caveats. Its design mirrors that of BindGen, so at a high level, the workflow is the same, except that we're going the other direction. As with BindGen, you can use it either as a command line tool or as a build.rs tool. And again, I recommend using it in your build script. You have much more control and it's much more easy to get help and feedback when things aren't going right. And the API mirrors that of BindGen. So you'll pull in the C BindGen library and then create a builder and pass it a directory for a crate, in this case, called generate to generate the types and deal with the results if for some reason generation fails, and then you can write it to a file. But instead of that writing to a Rust file, you'll be writing to a .h file. And again, the builder interface has its own distinctives because it's going from Rust to C, but very much mirrors the basic design ideas that you find in the bindgen crate. Thus, CBindGen. It's worth noting here that CBindGen has some very important limitations and gotchas. Here I'm cribbing from a blog post by one of the maintainers of the crate. The specific gotchas that are the biggest deal are, first, it has a hard time dealing with path resolution. So if you have multiple items which would resolve to the same external name, it will fall over. Second, it doesn't understand privacy modifiers, and between that and not understanding paths, CBindGen doesn't actually know whether something should be exported from your crate or not. That is a pretty big deal. CBindGen guesses. If an item is pub, it thinks it's exported. And as we talked about in some detail back in episode 30, that's not actually correct. Third, because of where CBindGen interacts with Rust's code, that is, at the level of the uncompiled syntax, 
it doesn't understand macros, and macros can generate code, and that can be very important for what is actually part of your public API. There's an option to work around this using a Rust compiler flag, but it is not guaranteed to work properly with macro hygiene, so it's not stable. You can only use it on nightly. Fourth, and finally, CBindGen does not always know what to do with config attributes. It tries, but it can't always do the right thing. And by the right thing, I mean the thing you want or even just the thing you find unsurprising. The net of all those caveats is that basically the maintainers are confronted with the necessity of trying to re-implement non-trivial subsets of Rust-C to get it working. So CBindGen does work today, and you can use it in exactly the ways I talked through a minute ago, but you should keep your eyes on a follow-on project, which has been spiked out and could use to be a lot more developed, Rust FFI. Rust FFI aims to address those concerns with a much more robust architecture, which splits them apart and runs half of them as a Rust compiler plugin for the bits that need to understand Rust itself correctly, and half of them totally separate from that so that it can just be used for the build.rs and so on. That proof of concept hasn't seen a lot of motion in the last few months, but it's a very promising approach, so I'm hoping it gets some more forward motion soon. The last thing I want to call out here is that there are also dedicated libraries for providing Rust bindings for most of the major scripting languages. I'm just going to name them here and link them in the show notes. In many cases, these are actually the place to start if you're wanting to augment code you've written in one of those scripting languages with a native extension in Rust. The reason I'm not covering them in great detail is because the details would all be very similar and just different enough to get you linking into one of those languages. Whereas everything we talked about with bindgen and cbindgen is actually transferable off in any direction for interop with any language. The extensions you should look into, though, are for Python, PyO3, for Elixir or Erlang, Rustler, for JavaScript, Neon, and for Ruby, Helix. And those are in various degrees of maturity and stability, but all of them are usable, and I know for a fact that all of them are being used in production in various ways. And there was actually a great write-up from the folks at Discord just today as I'm writing and recording this about how they're using Rustler to speed up a critical part of their Elixir backend infrastructure, for example. I've linked that in the show notes as well, of course. I have one other thing to say about FFI and FFI bindings, and that is... Perhaps obviously, but worth saying anyway, you should test your FFI bindings. It's one thing to look at code and be pretty sure you wrote the right thing, but it's something else entirely to have tests in place that actually make sure you wrote the right thing. And you can just use Rust's built-in testing infrastructure to check a couple really important things. First, do a simple is this just basically correct test. Does invoking each function you're importing or exposing via FFI give you the right results in the happy path? Can you do a safe round trip from Rust through C and back or vice versa? And testing more than that happy path is good, but at a minimum, you want to check that part. Second, do you end up with any panics because you have invalid data flowing across the FFI boundary? 
And to test this, you're going to need to write some unsafe code. This is FFI. But it's also a good way to make sure that your invariant checking code on the Rust side is correct. You can assert that things should panic when given bad data, for example, using the should panic attribute on a test function. You can also get more fine-grained using the standard panic catch unwind function, and that'll give you a result with the error and let you dig in and make sure the details are correct. I also think that this is probably a place where a fuzz or property-based testing approach could be useful, but I will freely admit that that is just speculation because I haven't ever actually been able to give those kinds of tools a whirl myself. If you have, and in particular, if you've been able to do that in FFI context in Rust, I'd love to hear from you, and I may mention it in the future. Thanks, as always, to this month's $10 or more sponsors, including Rafe Levine, Martin Huschober, Graham Willidall, Jason Bowen, Soren Bremer-Schmidt, Daniel Collin, Peter Tillemans, Olushe Shonaya, Benam Esfabod, Nicholas Pochet, Jonathan Knapp, Dominic Cooney, Christian Paul, Dan Abrams, Nathan Scully, James Higgins II, Chip, Anthony Deschamps, Andrew Dirksen, Embark Studios, Paul Naranja, Ryan Osiel, Benjamin Manns, Michael McDonald, Daniel Mason, Brian Stitt, Alexander Payne, Nick Gidio, David Carroll, John Rudnick, Rob Chuk, Nick Stevens, Arun Kulshreshtha, Adam Green, Jacob Denar, Jeff May, Zach Peters, Scott Moeller, Evan Stahl, Joseph Schrog, Matt Rudder, Ramon Buckland, Johan Anderson, Brian McAllister, Jerome Froelich, and Olaf Adei. You can find show notes for this episode and every other at neurostation.com with scripts, code samples, and for many of the interviews, transcripts. Please do tell others about the show if you enjoy it, whatever media you choose to do that. Also, please get in touch with me if you have things to say. Again, whatever media you choose, whether that's at Chris Kreitcho or at Neurostation on Twitter, by responding in one of the threads on various forums where I post it, or just by sending me an email at hello at Neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding. <laughs>